Most of the male runners figured if any woman wants to run 26 miles in a driving rain, let her run. But veteran Boston trainer Jock Semple thought the whole thing was silly. No, there's enough competition for women. What the heck? Why did they want to tackle the, the, the toughest thing in the world? It's just the women and their stubbornness just want to do something that they're not supposed to do. That's all there is to it. You know that. You're married. That was 50 years ago. In the time since, women have made remarkable progress towards equality in sport. Today, 40% of all athletes are women, and yet women still receive less than 4% of media coverage. The Iron Woman podcast wants to help change that. We interview female professional athletes and other remarkable women making breakthroughs in endurance, sport, and research. So that when I grow up, I will have heroes. I'm Alyssa Gadeski. I'm Haley Chura. And I'm Rosalie. And you're listening to the Iron Women Podcast. This is Haley, and I've spent most of my swimming career squinting at pace clocks or trying to catch a glimpse of my watch during intervals. If you're like me and love knowing your swim splits but hate finding a clock, there's a better way. Form Swim Goggles are the first premium goggles with a smart display that shows your metrics while you swim. You heard that right. Form Goggles have a see-through display in one of the eye cups so you can see your splits, pace, distance, or any other metric right in front of you. I've done a few workouts with the Form Swim Goggles, and the coolest thing is once you press start, the goggles actually know when you're swimming and when you're resting. There's no need to press another button until you finish your workout. Want to learn more? Head to formswim.com. And now, the ladies you've been waiting for, Alyssa Gadeski and Haley Chura. Bye for now. Alyssa, welcome back to the United States and huge congratulations on your race at Ironman New Zealand. How are you feeling? Hi, Haley. Thanks so much. I am feeling jet lagged. I like don't know what day or time it is. I forgot how rough the travel back from New Zealand to the East Coast of the United States actually is. And I was like so optimistic because I actually felt quite good going in the travel out that direction. And I was expecting to have a similar experience coming home. And it was it was a little rough traveling for that long after racing. You know, I had a couple days even. So I thought it would, you know, I gave myself all these reasons that it was just going to be fine. And I was just going to be, you know, sitting on the plane for a really long time and it would all be good. And then I think I first realized it was going to be a rough travel when the Auckland to LAX flight I had a middle seat and Ooh. I couldn't, I, you know, and it's like, I couldn't, no matter who I talked to or what I've logged into or whatever, I like could not pick my seat to save my life. And then I, yeah, I go check in and you get your boarding pass. And I was just like, Oh, that's the middle. Like there it is. And so it's just tough to do that after you've been racing and stuff. But Hopefully I paid some dues so that for future long haul flights, I don't have to have a middle seat. So we'll see. But and all's well that went, all's well that ends well. I, I made it back in one piece and I'm powering through with the podcasting now to help me adjust and then hopefully have a good night of sleep tonight. 
We do appreciate you coming right off that flight to onto the podcast. And I, I have to ask before we get into the race, the race, uh, actual race recap, how is the international travel situation in the time of the coronavirus? Am I even allowed to talk about this? I mean, I feel like we should talk about this. You're the only person I know who's done international travel recently. Was it anything different? So I did, I didn't, when I was heading out there, right after our live event from Atlanta, that was like two weeks ago, I guess ish. Right. So two weeks ago, coronavirus was a thing, but it wasn't like a huge thing. So I didn't notice anything on the way out. I definitely noticed that it was an, a thing right on the way back, but it didn't impact anything at all. I would just say that like the amount of people who were wearing masks was up to a lot <laughs> by the time I was traveling back home. You know, the New Zealand flights also a lot are a lot of tourists are coming from Asia, a lot of connecting flights are going through Asia and things like that. And so I think for sure, since that's been a hub of where it has kind of been an outbreak, then people are probably even more diligent if they're going to and from those places, which is good. So there's a lot, yeah, a lot more masks and a lot of like hand sanitizer, wiping down things on the plane, like it was, it was actually kind of nice. Cause like sometimes, you know, plane smells can be like super gross and awful. And then like these flights, people were constantly like taking out the sanitizer, which smells nice and like fresh and like wiping things down. So you're just getting those like fresh smells all the time and things actually smelled cleaner, uh, <laughs> which can only be a good indication. But otherwise, you know, I was, I was kind of expecting based on things I had read, I was like, definitely not anticipating the middle seat situation. I was like, I'm going to have the whole plane to myself. Like no one's even traveling right now. Right. So that was clearly not the case. We still had quite a full flight headed back to LA and in LA people were traveling, you know, again, we, the, the next flight wasn't packed by any means, but there were still people traveling. And I think just taking precautions to get them where they needed to go. So going back to the actual race, it happened in the same city that will be hosting the 70.3 World Championships this November. So can you tell me what the correct pronunciation is of the name of the city? Because there's a little bit of debate, and I think many of us have been saying it wrong for a long time. So the correct pronunciation is Topa, which I, I try and say right, but it's so tempting to just say Taupo because that's how your Americanness wants to be like coming out, right? But it is Topa. And to be honest, even some of the locals there, I, I sensed like there was variation in like how they were saying it. And so they, you know, they aren't, um, it's not like when I've been to France and they like shun me for saying things incorrectly, right? So there they like still would just like be like, whatever, mate. And like, you know, keep having the conversation and like, don't even correct you on it. So that's reassuring and helpful for sure. But yes, I believe it's Topa. So you finished in eighth place and landed yourself in the money in a race with a lot of back and forth throughout the day, as I think you were anywhere between like sixth and 10th place at different points during the race. How do you feel about the race and your performance? So overall, I feel really good. Um, you know, I had, a good build, but it is winter here, you know, and it is like still early season for me. And so, you know, that anytime you're going to race early season and especially going like to that area of the world to race early season, uh, people are, have been training all summer and like, aren't necessarily coming off of these like bigger, you know, yearly structured breaks and stuff. So, you know that the competition is going to be firing on all cylinders and it's just a great chance for me to see like, okay, where am I at this base at this point in the year? Um, and I felt like I had a really good buildup 
especially considering it was winter, right? So I think my performance kind of, you know, was a good indicator that things I've been working on have been going really well. So my 102 swim time-wise on paper still frustrates me because I really feel like I should be under 60 for all of my swims now, no matter what. But as we know, the swims are very variable. And considering the last time three years ago um, that I swam there, the lead group was about the same time frame. And I swam a 107 that year. So conditions were fairly similar-ish on the swim between the two years, too. So having moved up five minutes, I felt like, you know, I was actually quite pleased with that. And I didn't get lost at sea, which is always like definitely one of my concerns. Um, and I swam with Julia Grant, who Julia and I have raced quite a bit together through the New Zealand races and racing in Taiwan. And shout out to Julia. It was her, you know, she, she claims she's retiring after that Ironman. She'll still be doing some other endurance events, but that was, you know, her last Ironman. So I'm definitely going to miss swimming and biking with Julia because we usually tend to, to end up racing together quite a bit through the day. And that's exactly what happened on last Saturday. So we came out of the water together, got on the bike together and Julia like put the hammer down and I was just, you know, trying to kind of stick with her. It's always my intention when I'm coming out of the water to be able to bike with people. And this day was one that I did that more successfully than I've ever been able to before. We had another pro woman catch us and the three of us were able to kind of really just make, put together a really solid ride. And that's, you know, it's, it's definitely more fun when like you have people around you to be biking with. I really enjoy that aspect of it as much as I am like killing myself to stay up with them and just getting shot off the back time after time. And then, you know, winding my way back up to get, get up with them and then getting off the back again. And I'm like, I can do this one more time. I can do this one more time. And, um, I was actually thinking of Ruth Brennan Maury's quote that she gave us as her mantra from the Olympic trials of courage is fear holding on for one more minute. And I was like, okay, just one more minute. Alyssa, like one more minute, have that courage. you right. So I, I, so yeah, I was really, really happy with that bike and the end result of biking that hard and like really going for it. I was able to also like see firsthand, right? So the last 30 miles or so of the bike can get pretty ugly when people have gone for it. And we had a day when Teresa Adam was out of the water off the front, like just absolutely destroying course records out there. And she had Meredith people, Radka ended up pulling out, but like I mean, we had quite a crowd, like really pedal to the metal. And I think that really impacted how people were riding um, in the first half of the race. So the, you know, the second half of that ride, I think for everyone, we were all really feeling it. And you can kind of see that from the split. So really happy with that. Came off the bike and my run legs definitely left something to be desired, Haley. But I, you know, it was like a battle back there and you know that they're giving paychecks to eighth place. And so you just keep holding on and like do everything you can to keep going. And so that's, that's pretty much how my run went. Um, I do feel like I'm in better run shape, but, um, we have some ideas about what exactly might have like impacted that. And I'm excited to do some more training because I have more opportunities to, to test this fitness coming up this spring. And I would say too, one thing that I thought was unique about this race for me was it's the first time I've raced an Ironman with a 70.3 happening on the same day. Have you done this yet? I haven't. No, I don't think I have. And so about a month ago, we got an email saying like, oh, we're actually going to like flip flop a lot of the day. And because initially the Ironman was going to start and the 70.3 would start. 
But then they looked at numbers and looked at things and they were like, nope, we have to have a 70.3 start. And then the Ironman is going to start an hour later. And honestly, initially I was like, oh, this could be, this could be a disaster. You know, like your mind raises to like the worst possible thing. And it's like, there's going to be so many people out there and yada, yada. But luckily they really did like plan this out and take a look at things. And I thought it worked flawlessly. You know, the first loop of our bike was definitely had 70.3 athletes out there on the course still, but the bike course was completely closed to traffic. And so that gave us like a lot of space on the road. We had plenty of room to be making the passes, doing that. And like the athletes at that point in the 70.3, you know, it's not, it's you're, you're moving by them at a pretty good pace. But again, like you had plenty of room. And if anything, it kind of, you know, was a little bit more entertaining than just in a typical Ironman where you head out on the bike for 112 miles and you may or may not see some people for quite a while. Right. So that was kind of nice. And then the run course itself, like a lot of it's on sidewalks and kind of this lakefront path and it's pretty narrow. Again, I was kind of like, how will the congestion be out there? But the timing of everything worked out really well and plenty of room out there, plenty of aid station support, nothing was running out or anything like that. Volunteers were still like in it to win it till the very end. So I thought that was like a very successful trial for them. And that town definitely cares about triathlon. They definitely care about Ironman. They are so, so pumped to have the Ironman 70.3 World Championships coming there this year. And it's it's just like, yeah, it's a, it's a triathlon like mecca almost. It's like this little lakefront town that you would never guess on the North Island. Speaking of the 70.3 World Championships, they are they're happening in in Topa November 28th. Do you have advice for any of our listeners who might be planning their trips to Topa or hoping to qualify in the next couple months? Either tips on the race or things that they should plan into their travel itineraries. Ooh, so tips for the race, I would say one big thing to take away. So New Zealand has a lot of chip seal. The roads are chip seal um, and it's, it's quite bumpy and bouncy. So first, like be, if you're building your bike and stuff, be prepared to be like on like maybe ahead of time practice, really figuring out which bolts might come loose and making sure like you have practice tightening everything that's going to need to be tightened out there because there definitely are stories all the time of people who go race out there and like bottle cages and things are just flying off their bikes because, you know, they're just not used to that bumpy of a road surface. Like it is bumpy, but also like race wise, make sure that you kind of think that through when you think about, okay, not only am I going to be on my bike for 56 miles, I'm going to be on my bike in a chip seal environment for 56 miles. And just the energy expenditure that that takes out of you, I think is a little bit greater than like some roads that are really nice and races that have like pretty smooth, faster bike courses. So especially if there's wind, like, so be prepared, like that bike ride can is 56 miles, you know, but it can feel like longer. And I think the energy that you spend on that bike is more than a typical 70.3 bike. So just kind of take that into consideration as you're thinking about maybe what to focus on in your training leading up to it and that kind of thing. In terms of travel, you know, I had the definitely like a privilege to be able to get there a week early. And I found that to be a really great time frame to be able to adjust. You know, if you do have the time to also stay, you could stay like for a month afterwards and still not see everything that New Zealand has to offer. But I would I would say make the time to go out early. And if you get there a week early, you do have time to like do some fun things, I think, and see some sights ahead of time in the race before like you have to be super serious for the race time. But if you do have the ability to stay days after, um, New Zealand is just such a special place. There's plenty of things you can go do just 
even in the town locally, like the Hookah Falls and things like that. They have tours on that, which is just like crazy to see these like falls running right through town. But then there's also some treks and trail runs and hikes you can do that are a little further out and that, you know, you could, you could, you could spend a lot of time in New Zealand. So try and take that opportunity. I think if you're going to make the trip all the way out there. Yeah. Maybe people can like parlay it into like extended Thanksgiving vacation. If they're coming from the United States, (laughs) be like, Oh, I just need to celebrate Thanksgiving for three weeks (laughs) and do it in New Zealand and the Southern hemisphere. But that is that, that Southern hemisphere 70.3 championship is going, that's going to be a lot of fun. So you have me excited to, to follow everyone um racing in Topod later this year and hopefully people are getting excited about planning their trips because november will be here quick but congratulations to you again thanks Haley. and looking at things for the podcast today so we want to let everyone know that we have the live feisty newsletter coming out so this is something that's coming out on tuesdays and there's going to be new weekly written content on the website that gets set pushed out also through this newsletter, just some links and other like updates and stuff that you don't want to miss. So you can sign up for the live feisty newsletter that comes out on Tuesdays by going to livefeisty.com. There's a little box on the right hand side to subscribe. And I think the first newsletter, it did come out this week, this past Tuesday, and it features a pretty cool interview with the new Ultraman world record holder, Didi Griesbauer. We had Didi on the podcast. Was it like two years ago now? I think, Alyssa, it, it's been a little while. I think but it was, she was, yeah. She was fantastic two years ago, and she's only done greater things since then. Multiple, multiple time Ironman champ, 49 years old, setting that Ultraman world record at Ultraman Florida just a few weeks ago. So definitely an interview worth reading. So livefeisty.com, sign up for that newsletter. Don't miss it. And Haley, so we have a sponsor, Forum Goggles, for the the podcast, and they have a new feature that's just kind of been rolled out where you can integrate heart rate data into the Forum Goggles kind of display and be getting that information while you're swimming. And it's integrated with Polar, I believe. And I know you have used Polar. You, I think you are maybe using Polar watches. Have you tried this or is this something you are going to try? I am a big fan of polar watches and polar heart rate because I do find it very accurate, which I love accuracy in my data. And I'm, I'm excited about forms partnership with polar because it's super hard to get accurate heart rate data when you're swimming. I don't know if anyone's ever tried, but it's basically like if your heart rate strap is like two inches away from, or like more than two inches, like two feet away from, you know, your, your wrist, you're not going to get accurate data or like when your arms up or in the water, like you're always losing that heart rate data. So with the form goggles, you use a little like attachment that I believe you actually attach to the goggles. I haven't tried it yet, but all you need is a small attachment, a polar heart rate strap, and you'd be able to see your heart rate right in the goggle gasket. Or if you don't want to see it, you turn that setting off, but it records it for you. So you can check it later in the form swim app, but it's pretty cool to have accurate heart rate data from swimming. And I'm really curious about, you know, trying it out hopefully in the next couple of weeks and bravo to form and polar for finding a way to make it work. This could be a whole new horizon, even for me, new data in swimming, which I, I didn't know I could, there was new data that I needed in swimming, but heart rate. I love, I love heart rate as a metric. So I'm kind of curious about some of my swim, swim times, <laughs> like, oh, you know, especially when the pool's extra warm, I'm going to be like, look, it's too warm. My heart rate's too high. <laughs> oh yeah. 
yeah, you can go with like the data behind it. And they're going to be like, this girl is like nutso. She's bringing us her heart rate data to show that the temperature's too high. <laughs> hey, they don't want to do like CPR on me. I, I'm, I'm like doing them a favor. But um, yeah, definitely check out formswim.com if you want to check out those goggles. And thank you to Formswim for sponsoring our podcast. Alyssa, now that you're back, are we going to answer some mailbag questions for all of our listeners today? We are. We have two mailbag questions up for people today. And as a reminder, you can always send your questions into ironwomenpodcast at gmail.com. And our first question comes from Megan. So Megan wants to know how do professional triathletes arrange for PT? When she has an injury, she needs to see her primary care physician and get a referral to PT and then do intake at the PT and then start treatment. Do pros have other arrangements, like more of a standing order for services when needed or something like that? And do we get sponsorship or discounted rates with PTs? Because like her point being, she feels like she would do it more if she had someone she could just call up rather than kind of jumping through all these like hoops, shoots and ladders. No, hoops and jumping through all these hoops. (laughs) (laughs) No, this is a great question. And I think that people might not realize that access to a physical therapist in the United States is largely determined based on the laws in the state where they live. So I did a little Googling and the American Physical Therapy Association website has a great document which details the level of patient access to physical therapy services in in every state in the U.S. And we'll be sure to link to that in our show notes so she can check it out and figure out the laws in her own state. Because I can say that in Montana, which is considered an unrestricted direct access state, the law states that a PT evaluation and treatment procedures can be performed by a licensed PT without referral. So if I wanted to see a PT here in Montana, I would go directly to the PT to make an appointment without getting a referral from my primary care physician. And the duration of the treatment would largely be based between myself and my PT. So it's not because I'm a pro or anything like that. This is what anyone in Montana could do. Alyssa, I looked up Virginia for you since you live in Virginia and Virginia has direct access with provisions. And so I looked at the list of provisions and it's like two pages long (laughs) and it includes things like PT qualifications and number of days a PT can go. It was like very complicated. So if you live in a state like Virginia, like Alyssa, I think you're going to need a primary care physician referral at some point. I mean, do you have that Alyssa? Do you work with a PT? So I don't think I've ever gone to see a PT ever. (laughs) Lucky you. Lucky you. I feel like that's a great thing. Okay. But so I will caveat that by saying I, when I am in town in Charlottesville, I do, um, I have a massage therapist and she used to be a professional triathlete. She's like very, very good at what she does. And I can almost consider like that massage treatment as like PT for me. Um, because doing that treatment like weekly when I'm here is keeping me from having to go probably to like like the medical services side for treatment of other stuff. Right. So that's the trade off there, you know, and, and for that sense, like I do go quite often because, um, and I think there are certainly pros, like I know who are sponsored by massage. And since I have regular, like she does try and help me when she can, but it's by no means free. Like it's just something I build into, you know, my budget when I'm, when I'm doing that stuff. But I find that that work with her, like, you know, yeah, I think it, it kind of is my substitute, I guess, for PT, which is good considering that I live in apparently a provisional state for that. But I do think that, yeah, I didn't know that that was a lot. That's crazy because, yeah, you want to tell people like just go get it done. But it is it can be a lot of things to go through then. Yeah, I used to live in Georgia, which is the first place I ever saw a PT. And I know that there I, I had to 
go through a primary care physician getting a referral and which can be hard when you have a minor injury or, or more expensive or depend, you know, depends on your insurance a lot more. And, um, so it is kind of nice to live in Montana now where you can just go see a PT, but again, it, it depends on your state. So Megan, I don't know if that really answers your question. I, it, you're going to have to go look at what your state has. And if it's really, really that important to you, you can always move. <laughs> That's or, like the worst mailbag well, answer know, ever. Or find like a really good sports massage <laughs> therapist who might be able to yeah. <laughs> do it my, like what I'm doing and go down that route, right? Because I do think, I mean, there's for sure weeks when like my calves are some, like something's going on for sure. And I think I could go to a PT, but I just have always gone to see Anne at DNA movement and in Charlottesville here. Right. And she like, I tell her, she's like, what's going on this week. I'm like, my calves feel awful. Right. And she like certainly can find what's going on. And like, yeah, so I don't know. And I, I realize I sound very anti-government in my answer here, (laughs) but I, I recognize that a lot of these laws are meant to protect people and meant to protect patients from being taken advantage of or from seeing a a physical therapist when they should be seeing a physician. So these laws have reasons. And, and if you want to go out to read this document, it goes through pretty, pretty good detail on the reasons for them. So maybe, you know, it is there's, there can be some benefits to working with your primary care physician first and using that as your, as your point of entry into all of your treatment plans. So yeah, it really depends. And then the sponsorship part obviously is going to vary, vary, very much depend on where you live and what kind of relationship your physical therapist is legally allowed to have with you. All right, Haley, our second mailbag question comes in from Cameron. And so she is, this is like a great question because actually I have similar questions with people sometimes. And I've heard this all the time. So after workouts, her clothes are smelling really bad, (laughs) which sounds like a terrible problem. And I know one that like I have had before and everyone I know has had before as an athlete. So she just realizes that like, unless she does the laundry every single day, right. By the time she's actually washing her clothes, the sweat's been like permeating through it and it's just sitting there and then washing it doesn't seem to help it smell better. So she doesn't want to like just be washing loads of laundry every day though, because of like water and resources and things like that. So any advice that we have to keep the workout clothes from smelling, what laundry detergent we use, any sort of advice there. I don't know. Haley, have you, have you like conquered this problem? Do you, or do you just always smell it? fresh and clean. My good friend, Betty Janelle, who I feel like I've mentioned several times on the podcast recently, because she is the source of all my wisdom. She like, I think she's like a late night Instagram shopper. And, um, and she found this thing called defunctify. And it's like, in addition to your detergent, you put it in. And I think that helps like, and I've also bought like the detergent that has like Febreze in it. And that seems to help me. And I think, I mean, eventually like your workout clothes do like they have a lifespan, you know, and like, so sometimes they are like beyond, beyond defunctification, but, um, that's amazing. But yeah, I think, no, I think those things do work. And I think, yeah, I'm with you. I use like the tide sport or whatever. And it has like people running on the the, like front of it, but it actually, it's more expensive, but it's worth it. Yeah. I do find that it does make a little bit of a difference for sure. And I think too, like, I, I definitely find like, unfortunately the material that's used for like most commonly for race t-shirts, I feel like that you get from events is like the first material that is like the worst one that retains the smell and like people who know me like especially I mean I don't think my family really listens to the podcast but you know they would like they're probably laughing if they are during this because they always tell me like if I'm wearing it's always one of those shirts and they're like you smell so bad go shower go change right 
And no matter what I do, no matter what detergent. So I do think like those kind of whatever material that is right has its like lifespan. And then eventually you just unfortunately have to let it go. So there's quality control probably somewhere along the lines in terms of materials with that, I'm sure. Those tech tees. Yeah. Sometimes they, they are not worth the technical fabrics. It's like, I, there are days when I'm like, I wish we'd go back to cotton tees. Cause I think that they're a little bit easier to uh, get the stench out of. That is, that's a good point. All right, Haley. Well, we're getting really good at these long intro segments when we're both racing. So hopefully people are just right there with us and loving it. And we have an interview for people today. We do. So I'm, I'm sure many of you followed the U.S. Olympic Marathon trials coverage a few weeks ago. If you didn't, uh, you should be listening to it here because it's like been a major topic of conversation. But if you did watch the coverage, you may have noticed a few pregnant runners running in the back of the women's field. Women's Running Magazine ran a great article about two of the pregnant athletes and their Olympic trials experiences. From articles like that one and the crowd's enthusiastic reaction to seeing those women in the race, is very clear that the narrative around running during pregnancy is quickly evolving. So today, we're very happy to bring you a conversation with Kate Mahivik-Edwards, an Atlanta-area physical therapist and co-author of the book, Go Ahead, Stop, and Pee, Running During Pregnancy and Postpartum. Longtime listeners might remember our conversation with Kate just over a year ago about her personal experience with running and being diagnosed with a rare heart condition, which were the topics of her first book, Racing Heart. Now Kate is back as a mom and physical therapist who is passionate about busting many of the myths surrounding running during pregnancy and postpartum. So whether you're a mom, a coach, pregnant, considering pregnancy, or have ever wondered about the proper mechanics of stroller running, Kate has tips for you. We'll have our conversation with Kate right after the break. Triathlon is certainly hard on your skin, without a doubt. That was Teresa Helsold, dermatologist PA and accomplished triathlete. Earlier this year, Teresa came on the podcast to offer skincare advice specific to triathletes. Teresa's two biggest tips were to avoid sunburn and chafing. And luckily, Iron Women podcast listeners get 15% off all Zelio skincare products including Sun Barrier SPF 45 zinc-based sunscreen and Betwixt Athletic Skin Lubricant and Chamois Cream. Use the code IRONWOMEN at teamzelios.com for 15% off and use Zelios products to protect your skin during all your swim, bike, run fun. Hi, Kate. Welcome back to the Iron Women podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm so excited. So you have certainly been busy since we talked to you about your first book, Racing Heart, earlier this year, last February. And now this, your new book, Go Ahead, Stop and Pee, Running During Pregnancy and Postpartum, is described as being for any soon-to-be or new mom who doesn't want to slow down. Can you tell us a little bit about your own story with pregnancy and postpartum running? Were you told to slow down? And is that why you decided to write this new book? Yeah, absolutely. So as for people that have listened to the previous podcast, I was definitely a big endurance athlete myself. So lots of marathons and a few triathlons. I did sprint and Olympic and was on the way to half Ironman. And I didn't want to stop. And part of my life was running and was exercising. And when I got pregnant, I didn't see any reason for that to change. However, um, I went to my first gynecologist or OBGYN and she told me that I was crazy to keep running the way that I was and that it would hurt my baby. (laughs) And so 
What was frustrating is that I knew that that wasn't true because I am a healthcare provider and I was shocked to be honest with you. And I was also a bit emotional. So I didn't really say a whole lot at the time. I was furious, but I came home and I talked to my husband and a bunch of my friends. And when I went back the second time, he confirmed that, you know, she really was saying things that were inappropriate. So I went ahead and I got a different OBGYN and she was amazing and helped support me through the entire thing. And I ran up until about 36 weeks. I always get confused if it was 36 or 38, but right up there. And I did half marathon and exercise the entire time. So it was great. And Kate, I really enjoyed how you and your co-author, Blair Green, you guys opened the book by sharing your stories, right? And some personal aspects of that. And that actually really drew me in as someone who's like not pregnant, not postpartum, you know, <laughs> hasn't been either of these things. But I, I really just felt like the themes that I was reading about, one were things I've seen friends experience. So that kind of drew me in. But also I think those themes kind of transcend pregnancy experience itself, right? So why was it important for you to open the book by sharing those stories? Well, I think first of all, it drew you in, right? So if I started with a bunch of medical terms and really boring things, nobody's going to read the book. And that's the truth. And the book is so invaluable for athletes. I think it's so important that I wanted people to want to read the book. Um, the other piece is I wanted everyone to understand and Blair wanted everyone to understand that we'd been there. I mean, we went through this and even though we're healthcare providers, we still went through it. And we realized that so many people have no idea what to do and what to expect when they're pregnant and then postpartum. And if we didn't know the answers, then nobody was going to know the answers. And in your first book, Racing Heart, you share a very like personal story in that one. And so was it hard to be vulnerable again, like when you know what could be coming <laughs> from people reading that and to put that in print again? I think it's always hard to be vulnerable, to be honest with you, but I've learned that if you're not, then people don't really relate. And at this point, I've put everything out there. I think it, <laughs> so. there's not much left to, for people to wonder about me. And I'm okay with that. I just, I think people learn from experience. And if you don't share your experience, then people can't learn from it. Kate, you spend some time in this book dispelling many of the myths that are out there for <laughs> pregnant and postpartum runners. We don't want to spoil the good stuff for our listeners. We want them to, to get a copy of your book for them for themselves. But we picked out two pieces that we really wanted to discuss with you. The first one is running during pregnancy will put too much pressure on your bladder muscles and cause future leakage. Can you talk about that, that myth? Absolutely. So it's actually disturbing how many people think pregnancy is the cause of that. I mean, two thirds of women while they're pregnant, will have urinary leakage, regardless of if they exercise. It doesn't matter if they exercise or not. So you exercising is not going to cause that. In fact, you exercising will make you healthier and put you in a better position later. So I think that that's one of the things that we all need to know is it happens regardless. But just because you have leakage doesn't mean you're going to have leakage later. So most women don't have leakage a few weeks, like about eight weeks or so after they give birth. If you continue to have it, it's not normal and you need to have it checked out by a public health therapist. Okay. And then the second one we, we want to have you kind of expand on a little bit is that running will increase a woman's heart rate too much and hurt the baby. 
<laughs> well, you guys should know all this about heart rate, right? So heart rate is different for everybody. Everybody has a different baseline. Everybody trains at a different heart rate. So how in the world can you use heart weight to deter, or excuse me, heart rate to determine how to train? right? And so your your heart rate is not a good indicator of what's happening with a baby. But what you can do when you're exercising is you can use the talk test and you can, if you can continue to have a conversation, then you will be fine with whatever exercise you're doing, whether it's on the bike, whether it's swimming or whether it's running. So it's more about going off of your feel rather than a specific number for all women, because if there's one number for all women, then that's not going to be accurate because even not pregnant women have different, I mean, everyone, people have different heart rate yeah. ranges. That's right. Heart rate has nothing to do with it. And I mean, you can't, yeah, you can't predict your exercise based on heart rate because it is so variable between everybody. I'm just picturing some doctors giving out like this little chart that's like, okay, here's your heart rate chart for pregnancy now. And like, everything's just like the normal heart rate chart that you see at the gyms. Right. And then it's like scaled back like 30% or something like that. And it's just like totally arbitrary. I feel like that probably happens quite a bit. 220, 220 minus your age or whatever. Yeah. Oh, I know. And I was thinking about, you know, thinking about heart rate. I mean, I remember when I went in for my heart condition, after I had my incident, I went in and they said, your heart rate's 38. There's something wrong with you. And I'd been training for a half iron. And so I said, no, there's nothing wrong with me in terms of this. I mean, this is very normal. And so, you know, the average, the normal resting heart rate for an average human being is around 70, but for, for athletes, it's much less. So you just can't, you can't give somebody a number and just say, Hey, stick to this random number. And speaking of things that, you know, probably aren't advocated for by doctors in many places, you bring up the concept of the fourth trimester. So Mm -hmm. can you tell our listeners what that is and maybe a little bit about what we can do as women to advocate for this concept for ourselves, for our peers and for people going, you know, from pregnancy into the postpartum life? Sure. And actually what's really great is the Ameri- um, so the medical docs for the ones that actually said there's a fourth trimester, they've actually accepted it. So it's starting to become more mainstream, which is really, really good for all of us because once those guidelines are put out there, then we can start building on that as healthcare practitioners and as regular people or athletes. But the fourth trimester is essentially, you know, another trimester where you're recovering. And so many countries around the world, people after or women after they have children get to recover. They're not expected to go back to work right away. They're not expected to have their body bounce back right away. It's this whole different idea that I hope someday changes society a little bit and helps us to maybe treat ourselves better. But it's it's about taking care of yourself, making sure that your pelvic floor muscles are working, making sure you're breathing correctly so that your deep core can come on, making sure that you're resting enough and eating enough so that you can properly breastfeed and not get stress fractured. So there's a lot of different components of it, but during that fourth trimester, what they're saying is take care of yourself and you need more than just one postpartum doctor's appointment, which is what happens typically in the United States. You need more than that. And from our perspective, you need appointments with a pelvic health therapist or somebody that can help you return to your goals. And where does someone find that person? You know, if their doctor says one visit, okay, you're good to go. I mean, how do you, how do you know this? I mean, I guess if you've read your book, you've heard this podcast, you know that, but where, where do you start? Do you ask a friend? 
So I think the best thing is that any woman who's had a baby needs to go to a pelvic health therapist at least once at approximately eight weeks. And that'll determine because so many injuries, musculoskeletal injuries and other issues later on stem from this for women. And we just don't realize it. I mean, I see patients 10 years down the road who still have urinary incontinence and said, and were told that it was normal. So they didn't do anything about it or they have hip pain and it's really coming from their pelvic floor. So, um, I think any woman, needs to go see a public health therapist. Now to find one can be a little bit tricky. So it depends on where you're located. You know, in a, in a huge city like Atlanta, it's not a big deal. There's, there are tons of public health therapists around and you can ask your physician. And if they don't know, you can probably just Google (laughs) public health therapists in Atlanta, but you can also look online for people who are in more rural areas. There are a few resources, online resources that can um, help you get your body back postpartum but they're always run by a physical therapist. So there are a couple different ways that you can go about it, but I would start by asking your physician if, if they're a really good physician, they know about the pelvic health therapist in the area and then ask your friends as well, because I bet that somebody in your friend group has seen a pelvic health therapist, even if they haven't spoken about it. And as triathletes, we hear a lot about the importance of strength work, you know, for all ages and abilities. You're a physical therapist, Why is strength and stability work also so important for pregnant runners? Like we're not talking postpartum, but during pregnancy. Well, because everything is changing and it changes so rapidly. So essentially your muscles are changing, your bones are changing, your cardiovascular system is changing, your ligaments are becoming more lax and all of that happening changes how we move and how we accept weight through our body. So if we want to continue to exercise and be healthy during pregnancy and after, the best thing we can do to support our ligaments and our joints and our bones is to strengthen the muscles that help support that. And Kate, we were going to return back to the myths again, which we've kind of talked through a little bit. So this was one of the postpartum myths that you kind of dispel in the book. And it was that after I have a baby, I have to get used to peeing when I run. And so we've kind of talked about this a little Mm -hmm. bit, I guess, but you know, say for the people who maybe weren't quite listening one more (laughs) time, like, you know, talk us through that and give us kind of like, again, just kind of that, the best step to do next. If you're finding yourself like, oh, this isn't normal. Sure. So peeing postpartum or urinary incontinence postpartum is common, but not normal. So if you are having any urinary incontinence, you need to, you need to see a pelvic health therapist. And if you think about it, the pelvic floor is a group of muscles. That's all it is. It's a group of muscles that's suspended. And there are many, many ways to make those muscles stronger. Those muscles can get trigger points in them. Those muscles can be strained. There can, there's a lot of stuff that can happen there. And honestly, I mean, anyone who has had a baby knows that a lot of stuff happens there when you're giving birth. So there could be tears that happen. And then also postural changes occur throughout pregnancy. And after you give, um, have a baby, that doesn't go away. So all of those things impact how your pelvic floor functions. And that's why a pelvic health therapist will can be very, very helpful in returning you to a place where you're not um, leaking. If you continue to leak, it means that that support system that you have is not working correctly. And so the pelvic floor, in addition to being a group of muscles, is also the bottom of the core. So if you think about the core, you think about the diaphragm on the top and the pelvic floor muscles on the bottom, and then in the front, the transverse abdominis or the abdominals, and then you know the multifidi are at the back. And when you take your breath in, you inhale, and as and your pelvic floor descends with that diaphragm, and as you exhale, it's um, 
comes up with that diaphragm. And if there's something going on in that pelvic floor, that system is not working. So you're not using your deep core muscles anymore. And Kate, in the book, you say that once a woman is postpartum, she's always postpartum and that the things that a lot of women experience this time have been normalized. There's a quote where you, you say there are t-shirts discussing our extreme fatigue or inability to do jumping jacks, blogs and memes and social media that glorifies all things that moms deal with when they don't have to. So how can we as athletes, coaches, women of the world, et cetera, help to unnormalize this? I think talking about it is the first step. Just saying, okay, so you're peeing in your pants when you're running. That's not normal. Why don't you go get some help? Like that's definitely a first step. Um, and that's honestly the biggest thing. Um, and, but then there are other things. I mean, we are postpartum forever. Your body changes and some things go back and some things don't. Your pelvis may be wider forever. You may not actually, it may not go back to the right size. You, I don't know if you know any women who have said that, wow, my jeans just still can't fit. I, even though I've lost all my weight, my jeans don't fit. And that's because their pelvic girdle hasn't returned to its previous size. Your feet change. So sometimes they become wider. That arch comes down a little bit. And that's why we give so many of those little uh, foot exercises in the book to kind of help with that. But these changes that happen, some of them come back and some of them don't. And it doesn't mean that you're any worse postpartum. In fact, many women, you know, race better postpartum than they did prior to having kids. Um, but it just means you're different. You're a different athlete. And as a runner or a triathlete or um, any kind of athlete, women can be used to pushing through aches and pains and things like here and there that pop up. And I think it can become a habit to kind of do that. Right. Mm -hmm. And this can be risky when you are postpartum because women are at a greater risk for things like stress fractures. So have you found any tricks for helping women like stay patient during this time and kind of <laughs> letting themselves sit in that like fourth trimester maybe and recover. Right. And to take that time. You're talking about my patients who are women, who are triathletes and runners. So patience <laughs> with returning to our sport is really hard because we love it so much. Right. Yeah. So in terms of, in terms of tricks, I don't really have any tricks, but I definitely have the conversation that you have to change your expectations and you have to find goals. So I think it's really important for athletes, regardless of if you're pregnant or postpartum, to set goals for themselves. And so many of my athletes, I have them set goals and then we go over together if they're realistic based on where they are in their body. And then I'll say to them, okay, this is what happens to your body. And that's why we wrote all of those things in the book about what happens to your body and how it changes is because I think that if people truly understand the changes their body undergoes, they'll get, at least they'll academically understand that they have to go back to where they were. They have to overcome some of those things to get back to racing the way that they used to. So I just think that people aren't aware of how much change your body undergoes. And so having that conversation and educating people is the number one thing that makes them say, oh, okay, maybe I don't need to push my heart, myself so hard. And the other thing is I say, give yourself some grace. You just had a baby. I mean, come on. <laughs> Speaking well, of just having a baby, your book has a lot of great exercises for pregnant and postpartum routines. So that's, it's kind of mm -hmm. cool how you almost set it up as a workbook as much as a regular reading book. But that said, during this time, women ha can 
feel really overwhelmed in general. They do. They just had a baby. They have this new human living in their home and everything else that comes with that. So it could be daunting to find that time to do those exercises. So Mm -hmm. how long should a a strength routine be to make a difference? Are we talking is 15 minutes enough? Should it be 30 minutes? And how many times per week? So I think it depends on where you are in recovery, right? So initially after you have a baby, I think you just need to breathe. Honestly, I think you need to breathe, get used to what's going on in your house. And then when the baby's napping, if you're not asleep, lay on your back and practice your diaphragmatic breathing. Think about those Kegel exercises, things like that. And that's simple. That's five, 10 minutes maximum. But as you start to get accustomed to your routine and you feel like moving around and you really do have to listen to your own body. And I think athletes, we understand our body, but then we push aside what it says sometimes. So I think actually listening to your body and then moving on in some of those harder exercises and squeezing it in. It doesn't have to all be at once. Um, You could do two minutes in the morning, do five minutes when the baby's napping and do 10 minutes before bed. So there's nothing to say that you have to do 20 minute blocks or 30 minute blocks two times a day. I think the important thing is that you just do some of it and do it when you can. And I know that that's not a very black and white answer, so that might be hard, but just do as much as you can that you're comfortable with and you're not completely bored with either. It's okay. We're well known for having guests on the podcast that give it depends as the famous answer. So (laughs) you quite a bit with athletes, I think. Um, And when I was reading, I was very interested in the stroller running tips because I actually like love when I have a friend who just had a baby and it's like uh, an impromptu strength workout. I'm like, oh, let me push the jogging (laughs) stroller, right? Like this will be fun. And it's so much harder than I expect every single time. But what are the biggest mistakes you see when women are trying to jog with that stroller in the, the first few times? Sure. Well, actually, the first time I jogged with a stroller, it was my friend's baby, and I pushed the stroller off the road into a fence and ran the kids into the fence. So, yes, it's really hard to get used to. (laughs) I'm sure everyone's fine now. And mistakes are okay. Everyone makes mistakes, I guess. Mistakes are totally fine and we're still friends and the kids are fine. So I think that the biggest thing that you need to know about running with a stroller is that a lot of women and men too, because a lot of dads push the stroller, um, is they lean over because they're really trying to push into the stroller and go up a hill or even on flat. And what you really need to work on the biggest thing you need to work on is that posture, trying to keep that rib cage over your pelvis so that you can breathe correctly and really tap into the deep core the best that you can. The more that you're bending forward, the less you're using your glutes, the more strain you're putting on your back and you're not using the core. So I think that that's the number one thing. The other thing is if you can, when you're used to it, so you don't push them off the street or into fence or whatever. Um, you can use one arm for a little while so that you allow the other arm to swing a little bit. So you can kind of go back and forth. But, um, yeah, I think that those are the biggest things. Posture is definitely the biggest. Okay. We love hearing from writers like yourself and you talk a little bit about the writing process and how the first rendition of this book felt very clinical and took a lot of work to get away from that. And here at the Iron Women podcast, we were always encouraging more women to share their stories via podcasts, blogs, and of course, books. And so knowing that this wasn't your first book and you have a little bit of experience at this point, you know, all the different phases, writing, editing, publishing. Do you have any advice for any of our listeners who might be thinking about writing a book and 
need a little help with, with this long process? Sure. Just start. That's the biggest thing. Just actually start writing the book. If you have an idea, do it. I had this idea years ago and Blair even wrote part of this book years ago and then stopped and pulled it out when we were ready. And I think that if you don't start, you don't, you can't finish. Right. So it's just like getting to the, to the starting line. There's, you have to get there to, to get to the finish line. So that's the number one thing. And then the other thing is be vulnerable and open. I mean, if you have a story to, to tell, tell it. Other people are interested. It's um, You may think it's silly and you may think, why would anyone want to hear about my whatever story it is? But the truth is somebody else is having issues with the same thing and struggling with the same thing. And if you tell them about it, they don't feel alone. And they know that somebody else out there is out there helping them or has been through that before. So I just think it's really important like you to share your story and just do it. Just go for it. And we definitely appreciate your continued vulnerability and willingness to share your stories. So of course, what is the best way for our listeners to find your book and support you? Sure. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, so it's on my website, precisionpt.org backslash shop. Um, that's the best way to do it. It's also on Amazon. So if you're out of the country, people out of the country, I say buy it on Amazon because I don't want to ship that far. <laughs> it's too expensive for them. But um, it's the best to buy it through our website because, you know, as authors, a lot of those big websites take most of the cut. And I don't think we ever talk about that. That's me being vulnerable again. Uh, better to buy it from our website. Great. Well, we will definitely include a link to, to buy the book on your website in our show notes. And we encourage all of our listeners who are coaches or women who are considering pregnancy or pregnant or postpartum to check it out. Um, or just interested, like, like Alyssa said, there's a lot of good stories that you can relate to all areas of life. And most of us know someone who's been, who is a mom or who's been a mom. So definitely good things about to, you know, get the conversation going. So thank you again, Kate, for coming on the show. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Okay, Alyssa, imagine you're stranded on a deserted island and you have to pick one thing to drink for the rest of your life. What would you choose? Haley, I think I'd have to go with Noon Sport watermelon flavor. Nice choice. Personally, I'd opt for the Noon Endurance lemon lime flavor because in my deserted island fantasy, I'm still getting in regular 90 minute workouts. That sounds totally reasonable. The good news is that all noon hydration products are made with clean quality ingredients that are good for your body and the planet. So if you ever find yourself on a deserted island or maybe just in the middle of a really long training day, you'll be thankful that Iron Women podcast listeners get 30% off all noon hydration purchases by using the code IRONWOMEN at noonlife.com. Once again, you can find Kate's book at precisionpt.org forward slash shop. She also has some exercise videos for pregnant and postpartum runners, a few running programs, and of course, a link to purchase her first book, Racing Heart, as well. I love these tips, and I think there will be a lot of women out there who do as well. So thanks, Kate, as always, for coming on and chatting. And Haley, I have to come clean about something because I'm realizing that I was relying on my jet-lagged memory for the pronunciation of the town in which I was racing last weekend. And I have a Kiwi friend who had sent me this ahead of time. And I, I mean, this is like so embarrassing. So to, to be clear, we have talked to Laura Siddle before, and I believe that she told us it was Topa. So I think that's why that was stuck in my mind at this point. But 
I have a book, like a, a straight from a Kiwi that says it is Topo. So, oh my goodness. The Wait, mission so we've for been our, saying it wrong still. So the entire Topo? intro where I claimed I knew exactly what I was talking about, I was still wrong. But I do feel like I heard Topa a lot out there, but I'm not sure if that was like an accent thing that I was hearing wrong and whatever. So the mission for our Maybe one is like the Boston to- accent of New Zealand versus like the Georgia accent of New Zealand. <laughs> no, I mean, that seems re- like a reasonable guess of what's going on but if people go back racing there or if someone just knows you can let us know why we have this discrepancy here but it's um, like tomato tomato topa topo <laughs> either way let us know i guess if you know but let us know as always if you are listening screenshot on instagram rate review on the app that you're listening to don't forget to subscribe to the live feisty newsletter livefeisty.com it's coming out on tuesdays a lot of great content there thanks for listening and Haley. I'll talk to you next week. Bye, Alyssa. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please subscribe, like, and comment on iTunes. My favorite podcast hosts are Alyssa Gadeski and Haley Chura. My favorite editor is Aaron Hamilton. The Iron Women podcast is a live feisty media production.